Hi, this is Tamson Granger. And this is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamson and Dan read the paper on Sunday, January 19th, mm-hmm. 2020. So we have some exciting football ahead of us today. Right. Right. So we uh, we got to get through this podcast first. Right. But we can't talk about the football because it's going to be old news by the time the podcast is out. Right. So we're going to talk about what we're doing. So you're not going to make any predictions or anything. No, they're worthless. But uh, um, we did see a couple of movies this week. That's true. We streamed a couple of movies. We're good at that. First, we saw The Two Popes with uh, Jonathan Price and Anthony Hopkins. Uh, The story there being um, Anthony Hopkins being uh, chosen uh, as Pope from a pool that includes Jonathan Price. At a certain point, and he's a very, uh, he's a cardinal named Ratzinger. He's a very conservative choice at a time that the uh, the church is dealing with some very critical issues. But in any event, he becomes the pope, and uh, that's fine with Jonathan Price. Uh, he goes back, uh, you know, to Buenos Aires where he works as a cardinal. And uh, what's interesting is at a certain point, as those issues rage on. Uh, Anthony Hopkins, the Pope, summons Jonathan Price, and they haven't been friends previously, they they don't have the same political bent, to come to stay with him and to talk about things, and ultimately surprise Jonathan Price with the conclusion that Anthony Hopkins feels he ought to leave the papacy and step down, and a new Pope chosen, uh, very likely Jonathan Price. And, And this becomes... A very long dialogue between the two of them as they talk through these various issues. Yeah, well, that's what basically it is. Yeah. All right, so we should say this is made by Fernando Morellis. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's you don't need to know anything about the papacy to enjoy this. It's one of those sort of conversation uh, movies. Right. Uh, you know, well-written, interesting. It has funny moments. It has sad moments. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, it's not, uh, a rollicking action no. show or but they're, anything. They're, they're character studies and the two lead actors are great. Right. And, uh, right up my alley because mm-hmm. a great deal of it takes place in the Sistine Chapel, right. uh, etc. And, uh, so, uh, you know, I'm recognizing things from an art historical kind of view. Even uh, the uh, Pope's so-called summer residence uh, has some fun uh, paintings in the background and so on uh, mm-hmm. that I'm wondering, oh, is, that, is that really there? Is that some kind of copy? What's the, what's that doing there? And uh, so that was fun. But really, it's uh, the language of it, the storytelling, the craft of it, yeah. uh, slipping back and forth with flashbacks, uh, you know, reenactments. A lot of it's not exactly totally true, mm-hmm. as I understand it. Um, uh, the um, Pope Francis was never summoned to Rome by Pope mm-hmm. Benedict uh, on this famous trip that uh, they describe. Right. Um, so it's not about that, but it's about uh, I think fleshing out some of these ideas and differences. And uh, perhaps humanizing these yeah. figures. Well, the issues. I mean, Pope Francis is pretty darn human already, but uh, the issues they discuss are real issues, and they discuss them in a very intelligent way. 
And, you know, the actors are fantastic and they, they make them sound like real people are talking about them. Uh, Jonathan Price is nominated for Best Actor, Anthony Hopkins for Best Supporting Actor. So it's a, it's a pretty good movie, right? Yeah. Yeah, I stayed awake. Yeah, that's the test. Uh, and then we saw Marriage Story. Uh, and now Marriage Story being the story of Scarlett Johansson and Adam Driver's uh, marriage which uh, starts to, to go south and becomes the subject of divorce lawyers and how uh, that works its way through the system. All right. You know, I am married to a lawyer. Yeah. Okay. So it wasn't about Adam Driver's marriage to Scarlett Johansson. They're the actors yeah, okay. um, playing these roles. Right. But it's about a marriage. And um, it's uh, about a marriage, uh, you know, that apparently has already unraveled, and they've decided to move on, and things start out quite civilized, and then disintegrate once they bring in the lawyers. Right, right. And, and so my advice, don't bring in lawyers. And I think that's what people take from it. But the problem is that the, the movie's completely phony. Uh, it doesn't make any sense, honestly. Uh, interesting. Well, I, you, I should give your reaction when it ended. What did you say when it ended last night? What was that about? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, here, here's the thing. In many ways, um, Marriage Story and the Two Popes are about the same thing, which is a failure of communication. Okay? Mm -hmm. uh, in the case of the Two Popes, Anthony Hopkins becomes the Pope, and once he has a divine presence, he has it in his head that he'll receive divine guidance with respect to the difficult issues he has to meet. And he doesn't get that guidance. That communication is not forthcoming. And that's what spurs him to uh, a change in, in the papacy. Because, you know, and you can't make God talk to you if he's not talking. Lack of communication. Uh, marriage uh, story is similar in this way. There's a lack of communication in that uh, Scholar Johansson's character just doesn't talk. Uh, doesn't, uh, there's nothing to say. Uh, you know, if, if she just said, you know, during breakfast, you know, I really think that, uh, I'm going to have to invest in, uh, my career in, in Southern California and, uh, take a look at some opportunities there and possibly bring our son Henry out there for a year or so while I work that through, they might have an interesting discussion about it, but there's no evidence in the movie that that conversation ever happened. Uh, which again, you can understand God not you know, sharing with Anthony Hopkins. You can't understand Scarlett O'Hanson not sharing with Adam Driver. There's something wrong with her. And then once, and once, the, uh, once they decide, once she decides, you know, deep in her own head, that therefore she needs a divorce, she does the ab absolute stupidest thing a person can do. She says, all right, so that, this is uh, divorce stuff. I'll hire a lawyer. Uh, and the lawyer will just make up whatever the lawyer has to say about what's going on. And I'm just taking a pass. Uh, who does that? Uh, nobody does that. Well, you know, first of all, it's the lawyer who convinces her that they need to craft a story. I don't think so. Yes. I, I think she's yes. absent. She says, we are going to tell your story. Yeah. And uh, she kind of, to some extent, admits it. But here's the other thing I want to ask you. Is it not possible that to make an interesting movie, uh, rather than uh, these things, these ideas not having been expressed, uh, by Scarlett Johansson's character uh, to her husband, uh, maybe all of, maybe um, Bombach is just 
and not giving us play-by-play exposition and just giving us highlights. He's trying to create a sense, create a feeling, create a, um, you know, kind of an oblique way of helping us understand the marriage at this point. The woman in the entire movie, the woman never says anything really substantive about what's going on. And on top of that, as the uh, lawyer does what the lawyer is doing, she just washes her hands and says, I don't know what the heck's going on, and takes a pass. And frankly, all the problems that come, uh, which I guess Baumbach is presenting as inevitable, this is the legal system, they're not inevitable. They're only, they come from, uh, they come from the scholarly handsome character being a sort of, uh, kind of a, uh, not talking in the way God's not talking to two popes. And frankly, I can understand the two popes. You can't count on God. But, uh, I mean, the Johansson character is completely out of it. But are you objecting to her behavior or are you objecting to the movie as enjoyable? Well, because the movie, the whole premise of the movie is that one thing after another, inevitably, uh, this is the way it's going to play out under the circumstances. Good people who really have strong feelings for each other, notwithstanding that those positive feelings and they kind of love each other in a way, fall uh, victim to a legal system that's going to put them at odds. And none of that is true. None of that true. It's only true if one of the two people is a complete moron. And Scarlett Johansson is a complete moron. I mean, Adam Driver, I actually think, is very good in the movie. Uh, and he is, uh, he's dealing with stuff. I mean, he doesn't, in a way I would have said to uh, Scarlett Johansson, I would have grabbed her shoulder saying, honey, you have to have a conversation. You've got to speak. He doesn't quite do that. Okay. but right. he, he's, I can see where you're coming from here. This is Dan Abuhoff, male... All right. Well, let me, uh, let me add something to it. A member so, of the legal profession. And people are so excited about uh, Laura Dern playing the uh, divorce attorney uh, who, who uh, is representing Scarlett Johansson. I didn't think she was great. I thought Alan Alda was great, who played the divorce attorney, Laura Dern, about how women are held to a higher standard. And she invokes everything, including, uh, you know, Jesus Christ and uh, the Immaculate Conception and so on. She really gets into it. I'll bet you anything they play that. It has nothing to do with the movie. It certainly has nothing to do with the law. And that, uh, but that people, makes people feel good. I mean, I was really disappointed by this movie. All right. <laughs> so you did not enjoy it? No, it's a you didn't total think it loss. Was true to life. But Adam Driver, I said this to you, and you kind of were skeptical that I was still enthused about Adam Driver, including his doing some singing. And I know you, know, you ran into an NPR situation. Or he was supposed to be interviewed, and he wouldn't. He wouldn't be interviewed by them. Well, he walked out of uh, an interview with the uh, great Terry Gross, right. on Fresh Air, because she started to play a clip of him singing in the movie. Yeah, he's singing the song from Company. Uh, what's it? Uh, Being alive. Yeah, and uh, he walks out. And uh, he said, apparently, he doesn't like to hear himself uh, in hear clips like that. He's self-conscious about it. People are like that. I'll just tell you, he's got nothing to be self-conscious about. He sings very well. It's in a very effective scene. But uh, in any event, uh, unbelievable, disappointing movie. So uh, let's move on. Uh, you had something about the Grolier's Club, I believe. That's all you wanted to say about the Oscars? I oh, the Oscars. Well, listen. You wanted to rant about the, the Oscars. There's nothing over. to rant about. There's very few uh, movies that... Really? Yeah. Uh, I, look, I don't want to blow it. Uh, I'll, I'll give you another week to think about it. But it's becoming clear to me what's going to be best picture. Uh, and it's, I, it's, I don't think it's going to be the movies we've been talking about. 
um, movie made by Martin Scorsese, because that's also, you know, not a very good movie, uh, even though it's getting a lot of talk. But I do think, uh, I mean, my favorite movie, you mentioned before, you said to me today, what's the best movie we've seen this year? And the answer you gave was Hot Millions, which is a 1968 film with uh, Peter Ustinov and Maggie Smith and English Picture, which was right. a riot. Right. It was a great, great movie. Right. So I was thinking about, you know, the year, the visual experiences of the year. Yeah. And of course, not made uh, during this uh, lifetime. But uh, in terms of this year's movies, we both like Jojo Rabbit. Jojo Rabbit. But I, I think it's kind of a hard time waiting. But anyway, we'll talk about that in the future. But there are very few movies that are really legitimate candidates for Best Picture. In your mind. That's the mind I'm using. That's yes. Because, I mean, there are a lot of real movies. They're completely wrong, these people. Okay. All right. I mean, Frank, look, I'll just tell you straight out. You cannot watch The Irishman and say, gee, that was a really good movie. It's an, That's a dishonest statement. But I think some people are saying that. I know they're saying it. So and why are they saying that? I think there's a lot of reasons, but there's there's no way. There's no way. So you you think it's just lifetime lifetime achievement award? It's lifetime achievement. Martin? It's currying favor with Scorsese. It's some seriousness, or you know, I don't know, but uh, it doesn't succeed as a movie. Clearly okay. doesn't. No, I know it didn't for me, but I'm not the most sophisticated viewer. All right, I, I am thankfully. So uh, go that's ahead. Wh- that's why I have you. Yeah, I, I know. Okay. Um, if anybody needs a break from the movies. Uh, I have another exhibition at the Grolier Club. That's the uh, Bibliophile Heaven in New York City. Um, And uh, right now it's having an exhibition uh, about women's work. Oh, let's see. Oh, I've lost uh, 500 years of women's work. It features the collection of Lisa Unger Baskin of all kinds of ephemera and books mm-hmm. and uh, photographs, etc., that have to do with women. Um, and the materials in the, this show have women working as scientists, artists, writers, activists, printers, architects, midwives, undertakers, uh, makers and sellers of books, patents, and you know all kinds of things. And uh, it seems like an interesting visual show. It has some amazing books. Uh, first uh, uh, book of poetry published by an African-American woman, perhaps the first American woman trying to earn a living by writing. This was the 1773 first edition of the book by... Uh, Phyllis Wheatley, um, and, uh, you know, just all kinds of examples of people you may never hear of again, uh, a wonderful, uh, stereograph, uh, picture of Martha Maxwell and naturalist, a female naturalist from the 19th century. She stood about four feet 11 and, uh, she was great at, uh, skinning and stuffing and, uh, setting up animals in dioramas. You know how when you go to the American Museum of History or something and they have the big kind of life-size diorama of the American buffalo right. and this and that and the other thing. It may be that she kind of invented 
that whole phenomenon mm -hmm. because uh, she set up uh, some dioramas at uh, the famous 1876 Centennial Exhibition in Philadelphia. Um, so there's um, a variety of interesting things. Women have always done a variety of things. We just uh, have forgotten about many of them or uh, maybe uh, didn't put them on show so much. So this would probably be, if you love books uh, um, and uh, you're fascinated Fascinated by, uh, you know, uh, women's work, uh, you might enjoy this at the Grolier Club in New York City. Okay. So just quickly, sports. I'm not going to comment on pro football because it's, it's going on right now. But we did talk last week about LSU. I predicted LSU would beat Clemson, which wasn't too hard. It was a good game. LSU was a really attractive team. But I was reading today uh, an article saying, you know, uh, people don't give enough credit to the value of this, it, that the U.S. is kind of unique in that it's the only country in which uh, there are huge alumni networks who get very excited about the way their school teams uh, fare in these football games. Uh, and it creates this huge sense of community. And they say in society in which institutions are increasingly breaking down and people don't have the kind of institutions that allow them to fraternize uh, in a way that's productive, it's probably a very good thing. I mean, maybe it is. I don't know. I mean, it's easy to, to make jibes at LSU and schools like that and say they really have nothing to do with education, but they're saying there's a value in these folks all getting excited about LSU and celebrating and, and identifying themselves. Who says this? Uh, this was the Wall Street Journal. They're just saying it's, 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 it's a positive in a society, and I read this a lot about the society. One of the things a society lacks is institutions in which folks might fraternize uh, and identify common goals with uh, are breaking down, and makes it makes it tougher to have a society that has the sufficient bonds. Yuval Levin has been writing about this. I don't want to get too deeply into this right now, but in any event, so there's a that positive um, take on it for whatever it's worth. Poppycock. Okay. No, I'm all for being proud of your school. And uh, I'm proud of my schools, and I feel some sense of community. But, of course, that's always promoted as a way to raise money. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, uh, it doesn't surprise me that uh, a conservative institution like uh, Wall Street Journal would, uh, you know, encourage that kind of good Look, there's, there's a lot of negatives, you know? even at the game. Maybe you caught this. Uh, uh, Odell... Beckham Jr., former giant, was on the sidelines. He's played for LSU. Yeah, the, what was all that weirdness? Handing out money? He's handing the out money. Okay. Yeah, handing out money. He's just did, literally did handing out money. Did explain that? No. That's because he felt he wanted to hand out money. And when they asked Joe Burrow, quarterback, about him taking money, he said, You want to know something? Uh, I don't really work for the NCAA anymore, and I'm entitled to keep the money. But, um, that was, well, that was just weird. But Odell and then he did the thing where he slapped yeah. the security guard. Odell Beckham is, let me just say this, he's a first-class jerk. And uh, whereas the Giants were criticized harshly for not having a big enough tent to include a talent like Odell Beckham and trading him away a year or two ago, no one says that anymore. No, no one says that. He plays poorly. He has incidents like this all the time. It's good riddance. So, look, there are, there are positive players and negative players. But in any event, the other thing was the, um, God, the, the uh, New York broadcasters all week, what are you going to do about, uh, you know, Carlos Beltran? Right. You know, who had a role, perhaps, in the Astros cheating scandal. And we talked about this six months ago, and I said then that he was going to be at risk. 
And that's what happened. He was at risk, and he's gone because it's a PR nation, and the Mets can do anything but stand up to negative PR. So that's it. He's he's history. Uh, so that's no surprise. Um, what's interesting when you read about the Astros now is all like it was so obvious that they were cheating in retrospect. I mean, the Astros did a lot of weird things. Like years ago, when they first started to build a championship team, they announced they were going to lose on purpose. They were going to tank. No one does that, that obviously, certainly not in baseball. I mean, the biggest example is, is the Philadelphia basketball team. It didn't work out for them. It usually doesn't work out. They made a big deal of it. They were going to just uh, tank, and they were going to have draft choices. That's not entirely cool. And then um, when you look at the statistics, once they start getting good, there's one statistic that's particularly telling that um, uh, the Yankees, and the, okay, you, there's two numbers, slugging percentage, and fewer strikeouts. It's very hard to lead the league in slugging percentage and fewer strikeouts because you're swinging hard. It's only happened twice in baseball history, except for the Astros. They both led the league in slugging percentage and fewer strikeouts in 2017 and 2019. I mean, clearly something was going on. How you could, how that even held up as a secret for so long when there were so many players who knew about it, and finally one, the former pitcher, spoke out again. I'm surprised it was kept a secret that long. So in any event, they are no longer the model organization. And the Mets are scrambling for a new manager. All right. You had uh, some science stuff, I think. I have some science stuff. Yeah. So, you know, more than Maxwell got me in the mood for uh, women and uh, nature. Yeah. So I've got three things from uh, the New York Times. One is about wolf pups. And this is from an article written by James Gorman in the trilobite section. And... Uh, he uh, is writing about uh, some observations at the University of Stockholm with wolf pups that retrieve a ball at the urging of a stranger with no previous training. Now, we know that dogs can do all kinds of things, right. play fetch with us, and uh, etc. But the question is, does this, um, you know, occasional... Uh, ability of the wolf pups demonstrate not a hidden talent, but something that was present in ancient wolves now extinct, rather than being something that was developed over the course of domestication uh, in the dogs. Was was that you know ability to fetch and play with and uh, humans and be trained? always there um so uh you know um that's kind of interesting it may tell us something new about play behavior of these animals and uh, their potential for social engagement so there's that also who eats alligators well i mean you know i guess some people eat alligators but the point is um you know alligators are you know kind of coastal are in some coastal habitats so it makes sense that alligator bodies end up somewhere in the ocean when they head into the ocean who eats them and so some scientists did a study to actually euthanized some uh, alligators and sent them down under uh, in the uh, Mississippi Delta, the Gulf of Mexico, and then had a camera that observed 
who was doing the eatings. And they found several interesting things. Largely, within 24 hours, which is like almost immediately, giant isopods were munching away at these alligators. And those are almost like these football-shaped creatures, which are huge. And the scientists were saying, well, you know, uh, you know we weren't sure how any, if anybody would be able to really you know, bite into that uh, tough hide of the alligators. But uh, apparently the isopods start out at the soft underarm area. Uh, so there's that. Also, to their surprise, some of the alligator, one of the alligator carcasses actually moved. And apparently a shark carried it about 30 feet away. So sharks must eat them. And then thirdly, a very exciting development. They found a new species species of osidax, that is zombie worm. Uh, they found a, a skeleton. It uh, The alligator had been nibbled right down to the skeleton by these little zombie worms at the bottom of the ocean. So this is all interesting and important because you wonder how do these creatures, these, you know, ancient creatures at the bottom of the ocean, how do they get, how do they uh, benefit from any photosynthesis? How do they get any carbon into their system? They're too far away from any light. And that's the answer. They are eating animals who eat things okay. higher. Uh, all right. I, I get see it. I'm losing you on this one. Yeah. All right, moving right along. Um, away from alligators to parrots, selfless parrots. So this is hard without a visual, but it was just charming. This is an article written by Elizabeth Preston, another trilobate article. And it's showing that parrots, African gray parrots, are intrinsically motivated to help one another. So you have these parrots that have been trained to hand a human a washer, you know, regular little, you know, aluminum metal washer to the human, and the human will give the parrot a treat. Okay, so they put these parrots in boxes, in these lucite boxes. So they put two parrots next to each other, and each one has a hole to the human. And if, you know, and we'll hand a washer out to the human through the hole to get a treat. If you block both holes so the um, parrots can't hand anything to the human, but could hand something to each other, they don't hand anything to each other. They're not interested in exchanging washers. But if you unblock one hole to the human, the parrot that has no way to get the washer to the human will pass it to the other parrot who will pass it to the human. And then the human gives that parrot the treat. That parrot eats the treat. Okay. So the original parrot who provided the washer for this whole process didn't get anything out of it, but continues to do that. And maybe it's hard to understand without a visual, no, but anyway. I, I find it easy to understand. Um, it's uh, pretty... Um, interesting and uh, this is taking place at the Max Planck Institute for Ornithology in Germany um, with a cognitive biologist Desiree Brooks. Uh, so that was kind of fun. Very charming little video to watch of these parrots playing this game. All right there was an article in the uh, journal I guess about Peloton 
saying that it's now embroiled in lawsuits. And the question is, is it a tech company or is it a bicycle company? Right. So and Peloton is this uh, the bicycle that the fancy bicycle where you hook into it. And it's not just that you're doing resistance training, blah, blah, blah. You actually have a computer connection, right? Yeah. You buy the bicycle. And, you buy the bicycle. And for, you know, $20 for a month. $2,200. Whatever the monthly charge is, you're, you're getting a program sent to you in which you're participating in a class in which others are participating at the same time. It can be either live. Yeah, but it's usually not. Or you can participate question. with other people. And one of the things that really makes it work is it's very high quality internet stuff. So I've used it several times. There's no question about losing a uh, uh, connection or losing streaming or buffering, which would kill it. I mean, it just works supremely did you, well. Did you do the thing where you're actually competing with other people? Yeah, sure. Where all people are doing it at the same time? Yeah, you can't avoid it. Actually. Okay. So was that fun? No, I don't care about other people. But okay. I, I think other people might. I, as a matter of fact, I... I was foolish enough to use my real name in terms of the name you put on the board. Someone said no one, no one uses their real name. I could have okay. been, could have been cowboy or whatever, but I missed my chance. But right, next time, you know, speed demon. Right. So that's it's in hotel rooms and it's all, all fine. Right. And well, you know, what's this? Uh, well, people are competing. About. So now there's something called Echelon with a bike that looks like Peloton offers a similar service, and but it's uh, much cheaper. Yeah. It's like sixteen hundred dollars as opposed to twenty two hundred dollars. Yeah. And there's going to be uh, new competitors. And if if Peloton's ability to survive depends on preventing competition by companies like Echelon based on their intellectual property or, or patent rights, whatever they think they've got, they're in trouble uh, because they're going to be find themselves challenged all the time. There's nothing magical about what they're doing. I mean, people have been uh, setting up uh, streaming where other people participating for a long time. You know, Nordic Track's doing what uh, Peloton's doing, probably doing it at a similar price than Peloton. Echelon's interesting because the uh, journal actually says the bike's as good as uh, the Peloton bike. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's not quite as the person writing the article said it wasn't quite as seamless yeah. an experience as the Peloton, but uh, it was uh, basically stimulating. Um, That's look. Peloton's so, got to deal with that, and you know Peloton's been, been going through all that craziness with yeah. the uh, um, Christmas ad, yeah, yeah, you know, buy, buying your wife a Peloton, yeah, yeah, etc. and so forth. I think they've got past that. Okay, uh, seems to me they've got some things to sort out. Yeah, um, and also the, the article I thought raised another um, interesting idea, talking about whether Peloton is just another bicycle company. Or is it a tech company? Somehow being a tech company makes it much sexier. And, uh, well, it also gives, uh, gives you a chance to prevent uh, competition more effectively. I mean, it's quite clear people can put together bicycles to look like your bicycle. And there's going to be no legal impediment to doing that. The question is whether the, the, the bells and whistles go with it in terms of the streaming is going to be allowed. And that's what they're trying to protect. And that's what makes them a tech company. Uh, I would tell you right now, I think that's unlikely to be effective as a strategy, but we'll see. All right. So just in case anybody that we know who likes bourbon yeah. is looking for a new job, here's a thought. Tasting bourbon for a living. So this is an article in the Wall Street Journal. It's about a woman named Jackie Sycan who has a, a whiskey lover's dream job tasting bourbon. 
Um, so she is, uh, she works for Brown Foreman and, uh, she's the master taster for Old Forester. And, uh, so it's kind of a fun interview, uh, asking her all kinds of questions about, uh, what drew you to this in the first place? Of course, it's uh, the age-old working as a bartender uh, to get through college. She was also a biologist, and uh, somehow um, the two worlds collided at a certain point. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, to a certain extent, uh, her job is fairly technical. She may taste and spit out uh, about a hundred... Uh, hundreds of samples of taste per month, but that fluctuates. They taste the bourbon at uh, several different uh, stages. Right when it comes out of the still, uh, after six months, after three and a half years, okay? And she's tasting for very particular things. And she's done work to enhance her abilities and being able to identify uh, various tastes, being able to understand whether it is a balanced flavor, whether it has uh, too high uh, ethanol for the age, or if it's not oxidized enough, etc. and so forth. So it was fun to read about her uh, doing this. And um, she does think that uh, she is amused that uh, people think it's such a great job. She's not actually drinking for a living. And, uh, at, you know, in many of the marketing um, gatherings, etc., she goes to, she's the one in the room who can't do any drinking at all mm. uh, because she's got to uh, run the program, etc. She's on the job. Um, also, a lot of what she tastes is uh, of a higher level of alcohol than what makes it... Uh, out to the consumer uh, eventually. And so she's very careful about how much she consumes and uh, she works out. She uh, drinks a ton of water. She drinks a lot of detox tea and uh, she takes a lot of supplements for her liver. And uh, they ask her, what do you drink when you go out? And she said, well, it's really hard to drink bourbon when I go out because, you know, I do that for a job. It's not yeah. relaxing. I can't let myself go. She likes a good Paloma, which is a cocktail with tequila and grapefruit yeah. uh, juice. Um, so anyway, uh, that was an interesting story about, uh, you know, again, some of the interesting jobs women <clears throat> have. All right. So uh, there was a what they call Bagelgate, which is just another embarrassing small thing involving de Blasio, the mayor of New York City, in which on uh, National Bagel Day, he was asked his favorite bagel, and he said, a toasted whole wheat bagel. And whole wheat bagel is not really one of your basic bagels, but worse than that, it turns out, and I didn't know this, that people who are really into bagels are not into toasting bagels. That if you're a bagel purist, you don't toast the bagel. Well, I said to you, this is funny, because your parents toasted every bagel they ever ate. Well... You know, and uh, they seem pretty legit in the world of uh, bagel eating. But it reminds me of a funny story. Um, when I first uh, met your parents, um, and, you know, I'm not sure if this, uh, if I was talking to them or uh, I had a friend from the women's ice hockey team who, uh, for some reason, was uh, out uh, at your parents' house with me talking to them. And they asked, uh, you know, what's your favorite bagel? 
and uh, it was either myself or May said cinnamon raisin. Oh God! And they just stared at us like, yeah. what? What is a cinnamon raisin bagel? Right. Not a real bagel, right. that's for sure. Right. So in any event, the De Blasio more the same. Um, I'm not a fan of De Blasio. Yeah. But isn't it kind of mean that we're always making fun of people for what they like to eat? Uh, no, it's the fact that he made an announcement and sort of made a press release. I mean, if he no one's no one's spying how he's eating. He he made an announcement. No, saying, but let the man like what he likes. He can like what he likes, but when it comes time to acknowledge uh, what his his favorite bagel is, he has. Well, to it's not like uh, he called a press conference to inform people. He can't get out of his own late way. breaking news. He's hopeless. So when I, event, you know, you New Yorkers are a tough, snarky bunch. You know, I, I think actually my mother ate toasty bagels, but my father did not. Uh, make of that what you will. So here is here oh, is that's the, interesting. Here's I the didn't big story. That. Yeah. Uh, here's the article. Here's the cl- article we're closing on. A suit as smooth as a shaken martini. James Bond has an unexpected weapon in the forthcoming espionage flick, No Time to Die. Corduroy. What? The slick Tom Ford tuxedo-clad spy invented by Ian Fleming now wearing the fuddy-duddy fabric most often associated with 70s literature professors? And the answer is yes. Yes. They have made that break. Uh, They have taken the view that in the more liberated Me Too era, they want to give Bond a blast of the contemporary. Informality is the key. There's nothing pressed or rigid. Uh, it, it reflects corduroy reflects the uniform of contract workers today or the freelance and creative class say previously Bond's wardrobe has been criticized for being too tight he could hardly move the suits would almost rip uh, while he was uh, on, you know on the set uh, and they said uh, you know he should be able to look good in a relaxed manner his, his suits don't move well with him and uh, those were suits of armor they're too rigid the answer is corduroy and a man with great confidence can wear corduroy. Uh, if you're wearing a corduroy suit, it means you don't have to wear a suit. It's because you'll want to wear it. Well, who do you know who wears corduroy uh, in a very confident way? <laughs> Somebody in this room? Somebody in this studio? But here, this is baloney from Baloneyville. Why? Uh, because, you know, um, there's nothing... You, we're now just going to tell people you think corduroy is kind of schlubby and unappealing, but it's really just as sexy as the tight-fitting, yeah. fabulous suits. Uh, no, no. The reason the character has the success it has is because of the way he dresses, the way he looks. This is just, uh, you know, the millennials saying, look, you know, baggy t-shirts and corduroys and flannel shirts are just as sexy as everything else. They are not. There's no reason everyone has to be sexy every minute of the day. My point is... But uh, corduroy, really... You know, not for James Bond. You have been married for some time to a man who has the self-confidence to sport corduroy in many occasions. And now, who but James Bond is catching up with that kind of self-confidence. It's gratifying. But you need the self-confidence to, you know, wear it. Yes, I have that. So there you go. Corduroy, honey. You'll be looking at it a little differently. And you're going to see a lot more of it. 
All right, not in front of the children. Yeah. Uh, moving right along here, uh, this is Tamson Granger. And Dan Abuhoff. With Tamson and Dan, read the paper. Coming back again after the football. Yes.